Okay. First of all, you're going to need extra water supplies. Second, make sure you bring sun cream, and I'm talking SPF factor 50 here. And third, and most importantly, make sure you have your return journey planned out in advance, because you really don't want to hang around here until the end. Welcome to the Backpacker's Guide to Prehistory. Welcome to the Backpacker's Guide to Prehistory, the podcast that provides top travel tips for time travellers. I'm your tour guide, David Mountain. For this episode, we're travelling back to the Permian, perhaps the most infamous interval in all Earth history. Lasting from 299 to 252 million years ago, the Permian was a time of extremes, of burning deserts and freezing glaciers, of endless ocean and boundless land. This time period saw the ascendancy of the reptiles, the emergence of the supercontinent Pangaea, and the greatest mass extinction of all time. True, it's not for the faint-hearted, but if you're looking for a holiday that's a little different, the Permian might just be the destination for you. To help me navigate the treacherous world of the Permian, I've enlisted the help of two experts. Dr. Neil Brocklehurst, a paleobiologist at the University of Oxford. Hello. And Dr. Suresh Singh, a paleontologist at the University of Bristol. Hello. Now, Neil and Suresh, a lot of holidaymakers, it has to be said, aren't that keen on visiting the Permian. Maybe because almost all life on Earth dies during it, but... I would argue that it's still worth a visit. If you plan your trip carefully and avoid the horror that is the end Permian, I think you can still have a really exciting holiday. I'm hoping you agree with me here. Yeah, of course. I mean, the mass extinction is only one event in the Permian. The Permian is about 50 million years long, so if you just choose your timing carefully, you can avoid not only the end Permian mass extinction, but also the mass extinction in the middle Permian and then the early Permian. So there's a lot of places you want to avoid if you want to avoid a mass extinction, but there's plenty of times that you can visit safely. I think if you're up for an adventure holiday, then I would definitely go. I would describe it as an African safari on steroids. It's definitely somewhere if, you, if you're up for a bit of a challenge and up for roughing it. But yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it. I would certainly go. All right. So, Neil, you said just now that there are certain times to avoid when visiting the Permian. But what other preparations should backpackers make? What clothes should we bring, for instance? What's the weather going to be like? I think you need to be prepared for pretty much anything. So if you're going to, for example, the east coast of Pangaea, particularly in the tropics, you will have what's called the mega monsoon. So in the northern summer, there will be huge amounts of rain on the northeast coast, and it will be extremely dry on the southeast coast. And then for the northern winter, it will swap. So for summer, remember your waterproofs, and for winter, sun hat, sunglasses. And what about inland? If you're going inland, if you go to the early Permian in the tropics, you won't find any rainforests like in the modern tropics. 
these largely collapsed at the end of the Carboniferous, but you still find seasonally wet areas that support islands of plant life and forest. But by the late Permian, you'll essentially have deserts stretching to about 30, 40 degrees north and south and temperatures up to 45 degrees. So be very prepared for hot weather. Definitely, yeah. So we're talking sun cream, extra water supplies, all these practicalities. Or you can just go to China, which was a set of islands off the tropical sea in the bay on the east coast of Pangaea. So you can essentially imagine you're in the Caribbean. Oh, very nice. So with the exception of these lovely tropical islands in what's today China, what's making the Permian climate so extreme? So it's all down to Pangaea. It's the giant supercontinent that holds all the continents on Earth in a single landmass. So inland areas experience greater extremes of temperature than coastal areas because water holds its temperature better than land. And in Pangaea, obviously, most of the land is inland. So in the northern summer, the northern land masses will get extremely hot, and that draws winds up from the sea and drops it all on the northeast coast. So that's what causes the mega monsoon. And then in the southern summer, this happens in the south. But that does mean that most of the rain is dumped very near the coast, and so the centre of Pangaea gets virtually nothing. Is there any reason to really head into the interior of Pangaea? Is there anything in the desert, or is it absolutely barren? It's definitely not completely barren. Yes, there was a pretty extensive desert belt across Pangaea, and unlike today, most species were concentrated in the temperate latitudes rather than in equatorial latitudes. But deserts aren't completely devoid of life. If you go, for example, to Maradi, which is in what is now Niger, which is pretty much slap bang in the middle of Pangaea, you'll find something that's very interesting. It's essentially a monsoonal desert. So we have a basin in the rain shadow of the Air Mountains, rain shadow deserts, kind of like Gobi or Mojave. But because of the mega monsoon, during the monsoon season, there is essentially enough rainfall runoff in the mountains to feed rivers and lakes, but only seasonally. So you have these drastic shifts between a hyper-arid desert and then a lush lake that refills every monsoon season, but then completely dries up in the dry season. Wow. So you have some really interesting critters that are basically focused around these seasonal lakes, things like Bunastegos, which is a pariasaur. It's a group of reptiles. They're large, they're armoured. Bunastegos is particularly ugly. It's got weird nobbles and bumps all over its face. And it's also one of the first animals on the reptile line to walk completely upright without the sort of sprawling posture. So yeah, it's definitely an interesting place to visit. You'll have, there's enough water runoff to sort of sustain trees and things like that. So there is shade, even in the dry season. And in the wet season, you'll have a lake with large animals like Bunastegos, large amphibians like Nigerpeton, which is about two metres long and has a set of fangs in the lower jaw that poke up through the top of its skull. Wow. So there's some really interesting stuff there if you want to look. It's not really an environment that we have in the present day, but because of the extreme monsoon in Pangaea, you have these sort of monsoonal deserts in Niger, that's the one we know the most about, but in Europe and Morocco and Argentina. Okay, so it's not just desert everywhere. We've got trees, we've even got some tropical vegetation in those Chinese islands. But what types of plants are common in the Permian? So if you go back to the early Permian... Uh, where we still have isolated pockets of forests, 
and the Chinese islands where we still have sort of tropical forests, we have groups of seed ferns called gigantopterites, which have vine-like habits. So you can see them winding themselves around tree-like plants that we have in these forested areas. They have little leaves that are shaped like hooks that help them in climbing around plants. So this is an indication that we have actually quite warm, wet forests, at least seasonally. Then if we go to the sort of middle and late Permian, it's much drier in the equatorial regions, but if you want to go to forests, then you can go up to the temperate latitudes, where you have, in Russia, for example, in the northern temperate latitudes, you'll find forests made up of cordatales. These are thought to be early conifers, and they'll have looked like modern conifer forests, evergreen, even the trees have cones, like modern pine trees. And if you want to climb a tree, then you'll find one of the earliest animals that was arboreal, that's Saminia. It's a sort of stem mammal, herbivore. And it's only about 30 centimetres long, so it's about the size of a squirrel. So you might not see it, but it's a really interesting thing if you can find it. It's got these uh, blade-like teeth at the front of its mouth that protrude forward. So it has this rather terrifying grin, but it is a plant eater. So a bit like a nightmarish squirrel. Yeah, <laughs> or a very small monkey. They have fingers that sort of grip the branches rather than like a lizard actually just digging claws in and climbing up the tree. So they have actual the ability to hold on to branches. So perhaps a monkey would be a better analogue. Okay. And then in the south, if you go to South Africa, you'll find, again, forests are actually quite different ones. They're made up of uh, glyphopterids. So this isn't a conifer. It's actually broad-leafed and uh, deciduous. So something more like oak forests. Uh, although it's not actually anything related to deciduous trees. It's a seed fern. But you'll have these glossopterid forests going quite far south, actually, into the much colder Australia and Antarctica, if you want to venture that far south. But then if you just want to have rather more mild climates, then in South Africa, you'll find a huge variety of animals in these forests that are actually quite interesting. You've alluded there to the diversity of animal life in the Permian. Suresh, can you give an impression of the variety of reptiles in this period? Because it really was quite remarkable. Yeah, so the Permian is the time where reptiles sort of come into their own. They've just sort of started to diversify and you have a whole host of, of different forms really taking off in, in, the, in the Permian. So you've got the ancestors of mammals, sort of the synapsids. Most people will probably recognize Dimetrodon, the famous sailback uh, synapsid. So most people will probably call it a dinosaur. Definitely not a dinosaur, though. Actually more closely related to us than to T-Rex. But you've got these sailbacked pelicosaurs, loads of these across Pangaea, you know, across the entire world at this time. And on top of that, you've also got these reptilomorphs. So they are sort of proto-reptiles. They're, they're kind of, they're not directly related to mammals or modern reptiles as we know them. They're kind of in-betweeners. Things like uh, these capturinids. So I don't think most people would have heard of these guys, but they, they were these very diverse group of reptiles that were quite abundant in the late Carboniferous, early Permian. You had some that were, were quite carnivorous, others were specialized herbivores. And they kind of filled a, a sort of niche as a, as a small, medium, yeah, small to medium sized uh, animals in most ecosystems. Uh, I would probably describe them as sort of, it's kind of like big lizards with really wide heads. You might have to keep an eye out for them if they, you know, they start nibbling on your, on your shoes or trying to <laughs> nick one of your, your, your bags, you know, try and make up with your lunch, something like that. You've also got a whole host of other sort of, I would call them, well, weirdos, to be honest with you. You've got these things called uh, Wigalta saurids. 
So they're like modern gliding lizards. So they have this membrane at the at the side of their bodies, which they can we think they could extend to sort of glide from tree to tree. To be clear, these aren't pterosaurs. These are a different group of gliding reptiles. Yeah, yeah, they're they're not pterosaurs, not related to any other um, uh, flying reptiles, as as far as we know. It just shows that reptiles were already diversifying uh, to you know to occupy all these different niches right at the beginning, you know, right in the Permian, right at the beginning of complex terrestrial ecosystems. You referred to Dimetrodon a minute ago, so let's talk a little bit more about these sail-backed reptiles, animals which belonged, as you said, to the Pelicosaur group. They look amazing, I mean, they make great photos, but do we actually know why these animals had sails? I mean, the short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> We have some very, we have good ideas about what they could have been doing, and I think we're, we're, we're zeroing in on definite answer. But I, I wouldn't uh, go so far as to say we definitely know what they were doing with the sails. So you've got Dimetrodon, which I mentioned earlier, and you've also got a load of other pelicosaurs at this time that have these elongated uh, neural spines. Uh, so you have things like Edaphosaurus, which is a bit like a herbivorous version of a Dimetrodon. But you've also got older ones as well. So there are some older pelicosaurs with these elongated neural crests. So whatever these sails, crests, spines were doing, they were obviously doing something quite important because loads of different pelicosaurs had these. Originally, they thought it was to do with thermoregulation, so keeping their body temperature at a certain level. I mean, you can see it sort of as a giant solar panel. You know, you turn it towards the sun, heat up, and being a reptile and cold-blooded, able to just heat up and get moving quickly. and the benefit of that, of course, is that if you can heat up more quickly than your prey, then you've got a, a head start and an advantage there to go out and catch them, or, or vice versa. If you can heat up before your predator, you've got a, a bit of an advantage on escaping them. But that's sort of fallen out of favour in, in recent years. So there were a few studies back in uh, around 2012, and certainly in the last decade or so, which seemed to suggest that actually these sales wouldn't have been that good for temperature control. So it may be actually that it was more of a, a display feature, you know, perhaps recognizing members of the same species or perhaps recognizing members of the opposite sex. So, you know, a Dimetrodon wandering about in the Permian looks over, sees a sail coming over the ridge, and he's like, okay, well, I better, better, you know, smarten myself up and get over there. <laughs> you mentioned thermoregulation just then. And I'm kind of trepidatious about going into this topic because I know there's a lot of ideas going around. But were the reptiles in the Permian generally more cold-blooded or warm-blooded? Do we know? So we have some good ideas about that. So the, the pelicosaurs, the, the, the sailback guys, they were probably cold-blooded. Right. But as you go through the Permian, you get the evolution of more derived synapsids. So you, from pelicosaurs, you get things called therapsids. These guys are somewhat halfway between the pelicosaur and a mammal as we would understand it something that's warm-blooded hairy and quite active so through the evolution of synapsids from pelicosaurs to therapsids we see actually increasing evidence of warm-bloodedness i do want to talk about safety in the permian because when i visit the permian i can't help noticing that a lot of the animals land animals that is seem to suddenly be a lot bigger and, frankly, a lot scarier than in previous periods. So if we're being honest here, what are the chances that I will get eaten or maimed or disemboweled when I visit the Permian? And is there anything I can do to minimise that chance? 
Yeah. So the answer to the first question is there's probably a good chance you will get injured somehow. I mean, if you imagine that, you know, walking into the African savannah, if you run into a lion or a hyena, there's a fair chance you you might not come away with all your limbs or whatnot. And it's a similar thing in the Permian because, like you said, you get a lot of large predators at this time. And that, again, comes back to the whole thing that this is a time of great diversification. And the synapsids are actually the the predominant predators at this time. And and pretty much throughout the entire Permian, synapsids dominate uh, as as the predators. In the early Permian, you've got the pelicosaurs like Dimetrodon, got to watch out for those so they were all over the place they're found in north america and in europe and these guys they could run pretty fast we think what they were they grew up to about two or three meters long wow and they would have been predators to look out for in the early permian when you're inland when you're near water you've got to be doubly vigilant because you've also got a load of these amphibians these temnospondyls which are kind of like base source with primitive amphibians if you imagine a, a giant sort of hellbender salamander and then make that really gnarly, make it much bigger, give it big teeth, that's kind of what you're dealing with. And so these guys would have been taking the role of modern crocodiles, uh, stalking the water's edge, waiting to grab animals coming by for a quick drink. In fact, some of them pretty much look like modern crocodiles. There's one from Brazil called Prionosuchus, which grew up to nine meters, I think. Nine. Yeah, so you've got to watch out for these guys. So that's the early Permian. If you go to the the middle Permian, then you've got to watch out for all these therapsid predators. At this point, the pelicosaurs are more or less gone, and you have therapsids appearing in force. I would always describe them kind of, imagine a really big bull terrier dog without ears. I mean, that's that's a nightmare, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, so at, at the end of the middle Permian, the Capitan is about 260 million years ago. You've got biomarsuchids, you've got dinocephalians, you've got gorgonopsians. And on top of that, you've also got these other ones called therocephalians as well. And so all of these are mostly predatory animals. And so there's a load of predators in these middle Permian ecosystems. It's really just a crucible of predatory therapsids. Oh, yeah. And that's not even counting all the amphibian predators that are still lurking in the, uh, the waterways. You introduced gorgonopsians just now. And I did want to talk about these animals in a little more detail, because not only are they some of the coolest animals that ever evolved, they're also responsible for ruining quite a lot of Permian holidays, shall we say. For people who've never seen them, they look to me a bit like, and I mean this as a compliment, a bit like giant lizardy saber-toothed rats. But I'm hoping that you can give a better impression of them. So, Tell us about these animals, these Gorgonopsians, and what makes them such deadly predators. So the the thing with the the, the Gorgonopsians is that they're very similar to the Dinocephalians and the Biomarsuchids in their skull morphology. They all have this very robust skull with with large teeth, but the Gorgonopsians take it to the next level. So you've got these really long canine teeth, the first saber tooth. What we think is that these Gorgonopsians were specialized to essentially just rip out chunks of flesh. They weren't like saber-toothed cats in that the saber-toothed cats, their sabers are quite thin and more like knives. With Gorgonopsians, they're more like spikes. They're more robust than the saber-toothed cats' sabers. 
And they also have this thing called interdigitation of their teeth. So it basically means their teeth lock together. So once they bite down, you're not getting out of there. You're not getting away from that. If you do, you're coming away without that chunk of flesh. Oh. <laughs> and so what we think is that they would bite down into the prey, rip out chunks of flesh, and then the prey animal would probably suffer extreme trauma from losing a massive amount of flesh and the blood loss that would come from that. And then because the Gorgonopsians also were very large and usually more or less the same size or if not larger than their prey, the animal, well, would be, you know, good night to, for that particular prey animal. For those of you listening and thinking, you know what, the Permian really isn't for me. It's important to remember that not all reptiles were predators back then. Indeed, the Permian is home to the first large herbivores in prehistory. Neil, what herbivores should I be looking out for when I'm trekking across Pangaea? So I think some of the most interesting ones that you might want to see come from the middle Permian, and they're called Tapinocophalians. They're a fairly unique set of animals, because if you look at most of the herbivores, the big herbivores we have today, most of them are mammals. And so they have, like we do, incisors at the front that they use to bite the plants off, and then molars at the back that they use to grind it. Tapinocophalians have these large incisors that have heels on the back, on the inside. And so as they close their mouth, the incisors interlock and the heels meet, forming a grinding surface. So they're effectively using their incisors to both crop plant matter and chew it. Wow. In some cases, things like moskops, which is from the middle Permian of South Africa, so one of the things living in these glossopterid forests, it has a skull about 11 centimetres thick, and it was probably using that for headbutting. So you can imagine these two animals weighing nearly two tonnes each, charging at each other. Must have been an absolutely incredible experience. So. Absolutely. Although I think I'll be watching that one from a distance, maybe through some binoculars rather than uh, yeah. getting too close. Of course, the Permian wasn't just home to reptiles and amphibians. Suresh, when I'm... I don't know, putting my boots on in the morning or setting up a tent at night. What about creepy crawlies? Do I need to look out for spiders and scorpions in the Permian? Were they around? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, spiders and scorpions, a lot of the insect groups are around. So you've got cockroaches as well at this time. They're already about. And so, yeah, you have to keep an eye out for those creepy crawlies. Again, and in a, in a, probably a recurring theme for the Permian, you've also got these large insects to watch out for as well. Of course. We've got modern dragonflies. Well, back then they had these things called griffin flies, and they're essentially just giant dragonflies. Meganeuropsis is in there from the early Permian. That had a wingspan of about 28 inches or 70 centimetres. If you think being attacked by seagulls today for, for you know your, your chips on the beachfront is a bother, imagine being attacked by one of these guys for your food. And on top of that, you've also got giant mayflies, these Paleodigoptera, which they're not going to attack you, but anyone who's been on holiday to places like Africa or to Australia, the number of flies that just get in your face, uh, they're just annoying as, as anything. Well, imagine a giant mayfly hitting you in the face. It's just not, it's not, it's not going to be a pleasant uh, experience. No, this is it's sounding more and more like an endurance test than a holiday. I'm going to be honest. Now you say giant mayfly, how big are we talking? So it's going to be somewhat similar to the Meganeuropsis. So oh. you're looking at 30 centimetres would be a wingspan for quite a few of these. I think at this point we need to address the Scutosaurus in the room and talk about the Permian-Triassic mass extinction. 
because it was a massive mass extinction, the largest of all time. So what on earth was going on at the end of the Permian to cause this? In all mass extinctions, it's quite hard to pin down a specific cause. There's a lot happening at the end of the Permian. The most obvious thing to talk about is the Siberian Traps. It's what's called the Flood Basalt Eruption, which is massive volcanic eruptions lasting for millions of years and covering areas of thousands of square miles. The Siberian Traps was going on for about two million years, and volcanic eruptions release huge amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, leading to a runaway greenhouse effect. And now, obviously, the climate in Pangaea was pretty extreme already, and with high temperatures, there was already extreme aridity. And so you have this massive event that may have pushed an already unstable set of ecosystems completely over the edge. And then in the oceans, you, when you have warm temperatures like this, you have anoxia, which makes life even more difficult in the oceans. And so all of this is coming together in a very nasty way for life. Uh, about 95% of life died out at this time. Yeah. The closest that animal life has ever come to becoming completely extinct. You have uh, essentially the poisoning of the oceans. And so in the deeper oceans, there's a complete lack of oxygen. Is again, you've got this uh, fall in oxygen levels through time. It comes to a crisis in the Permatrassic extinction event. And I mean, there's only one ocean at this time as well, really, the Panthalassa. And all the deep ocean is completely poisoned. It's devoid of oxygen. And so it's kind of similar to what you see in places in, in today in the, in the Black Sea and in other areas around the world. You have these areas where there's no oxygen in the water or very little oxygen in the water. And so the only life that can really live there are these single-celled organisms, sort of bacteria and algae and anything, any animals that try and live there. They simply can't because there's not enough oxygen. And also these bacteria that thrive in these places produce a lot of very nasty chemicals, sort of like hydrogen and sulfides and whatnot, which will... If the oxygen didn't kill you, that would kill you. It's like red tides that you see today, similar sort of thing. The oceans would have become kind of pink in colour or purple. So yeah, it's very, very strange situation. So that's in the oceans, but what about on land? Neil, we talked a bit earlier about the plants of the Permian, with the deciduous glossopterous forests of the south and those early conifers of the north. So how are these plants affected by the Permian-Triassic mass extinction? And what survived into the early Triassic? So the end Permian extinction is actually a fairly unique event in plant history, because plants seem to survive through most of the big mass extinctions fairly happily. But the end Permian extinction absolutely decimated plant life. So the record we have at the moment, we see the coal gap at this time. So a complete lack of coal from the post-extinction. Coal formation requires inputs of plant matter into a stagnant water system. And one of the requirements is that this organic matter is being input faster than it decays. So the sudden disappearance of coal at this time is really a testament to how bad things get for plants. Glossopterids are gone, so the southern forests are gone. The Corditales from the northern forests, they go. We basically have no forests. What we essentially have in the early Triassic is just ground level plants. And in particular, we have things like ferns and sort of shrubby club mosses. Ferns in particular, we know from modern time, they tend to survive quite well in large-scale disasters like volcanic eruptions. In particular, their spores and they themselves are extremely resilient. So ferns are often pioneer species. So we now have a very open landscape covered with things that will probably look quite a lot like the shrubby ferns we have around today. 
I think I know the answer to this next question, but would you recommend the Ends Permian as a holiday destination? Um, no, not really. The, <laughs> I mean, obviously, you don't want to land right in the middle of the volcanic eruption. But even if you went elsewhere, temperatures are rising beyond a level that is comfortable. I mean, they're rising beyond a level that most life can survive in. So there's not very much to see in terms of animal life because almost all of it's dying out and what's left is mostly one species, Lystrosaurus. And once you've seen one of them, you've probably seen them all. <laughs> yeah, it's not a pleasant feeling being in 40 to 50 degree temperatures as it is. And with temperatures rising even higher than that, you don't want to visit. Neil isn't joking. I'm recording this from the end of the Permian, 252 million years ago. I'm in northern Pangaea, close to the Siberian traps, and it's pretty hellish. The sky is a muddy orange, the air is thick with smoke and soot. Even though it's the middle of the day right now, it feels like the sun is already setting, it's that gloomy. Adding to the sepulchral vibe, Everything I can see is coated in a thick layer of grey ash from the volcanic eruptions. And around me, well, there's no sign of life, whether plant or animal or anything else. A short walk away from here is the Euralian Seaway, but even there the coastline contains only the washed up remains of dead sea creatures. As you can probably hear, I'm wearing a protective suit, which is frankly the only reason why I haven't keeled over yet. I'm breathing from an air supply because the atmosphere here is not only low in oxygen, but loaded with carbon dioxide, methane and toxic hydrogen sulfide. The suit also protects me against UV rays, which is necessary given that the newly released methane in the atmosphere has eaten away at the Earth's protective ozone layer. Suresh. So many incredible life forms die out at the end of the Permian, from fearsome predators like the Gorgonopsians to icons of prehistory like the trilobites. So perhaps it's easier to talk about what wasn't wiped out. Did any animals survive the Permian fairly unscathed? I wouldn't say fairly unscathed. I think pretty much everything took a hit at this point, but some groups certainly did better than others. In terms of survivors, the Dicynodonts, which I haven't mentioned yet. So these guys were therapsids, but these were nice ones. I always describe them like, uh, imagine a pig with the head of a turtle. So you got the, some of those, and that's probably like a mid-sized one, but some of them were tiny, you know, they were like sort of small cat-sized things. They had a great diversity in, in the Permian. Some of them, like the smaller ones, were burrowers and diggers. And then you had much larger ones, which would have filled a, a sort of ecological role similar to, kind of similar to hippos just sort of lounging around by near water sources, grazing and whatnot. So those guys, the Dicynodonts, one genus of Dicynodont is probably the, the most successful survivor from the Permo-Triassic extinction. So these are the Lystrosaurids. So Lystrosaurus is the great survivor of the Permo-Triassic mass extinction event because it makes it through the extinction. And I think it makes up something like over 50% of all animal life on land are just Lystrosaurs, I think, at this point. In some areas, it's even as crazy as 90%, I think. Um, in South Africa, in the Karoo Basin, which is where you get a lot of these therapsid, permatrassic fossils, 
once you get past the extinction level, there's just loads of Lystrosaur fossils. Unless it's a good one, they don't collect it anymore, I don't think. So, Lystrosaurus was a survivor. But is there any discernible pattern to what went extinct versus what survived? Yeah, so... I mean, these are general patterns for most extinctions, is that you, you stand a better chance if you're small, if you uh, have a generalist sort of diet. And a lot of the time, if you, can, if you can sort of hide from a lot of the worst ravages of the extinction event. So if you can sort of you know, go into the uh, like burrow underground, um, that's probably the, the biggest one for the permatrassic. I would usually say if you can go and hide in the deep oceans, but in the Permian, that was a, a very bad idea. Whew. Well, I'm now back in the safety of my time machine. But having been out there, I can understand why some people aren't exactly in a rush to plan their Permian holiday. However, I really don't want to dissuade backpackers from visiting the Permian, and I don't think that we should allow it this time span of almost 50 million years, as Neil said, I don't think we should allow it to be defined only by how it ended. The Permian is a fascinating time in our planet's history, so yes, avoid the end Permian, but by all means, hike through those glossopterous forests of Antarctica, or go snorkelling in the Capitan Reef off the western coast of Pangaea, or scale the central Pangaean mountains. There's so much on offer at this point in our planet's history. And it's on that note that I'd like to end, by asking each of my guests for their one must-see Permian experience. I think, for me, I'd probably pick the, the late Permian, where I can see a lot of... Actually, I'll pick the middle Permian now that I think about it. The Capitanian, right at the end of the middle Permian, where you've got all of these things all living together, not just the, the Gorgonopsians and, and the Dysanodonts, but also the Dinocephalians, and yeah. I think that, that would be my one. And for you, Neil? I would probably go for North America around the very beginning of the Middle Permian. Just for my personal preference, I think it would be the best safari experience you can get. If not for the faint of heart, the climate won't be present. We've just been through an interval of extreme warming and aridification and a minor mass extinction. So there's not much water, not much plant life. But if you can find them, you'll have some of the weirdest and wackiest animals ever to grace our planet. So we have the one everyone knows, the sailback Dimetrodon, which is at its largest sizes at this time, about a quarter of a ton. So avoid them. They are the largest predators you'll have at this time. But you can see them coming. The massive sail at the back is a giveaway. But if you go looking into some of the isolated pools and channels, You'll have another old favourite, the boomerang-headed amphibian, Diplocorlus, with these two wing-like horns on the side of its head. And then we have, at this time, uniquely, this is probably the only time and place that you'll find such a diversity and abundance of some of the most interesting and unusual animals of the Permian. So one example is the Maradisaurine Capturinids. So these are superficially lizard-like animals. They're about a metre long with a huge head. These heads contain up to five or six rows of teeth. So you have these massive tooth plates and you combine that with a rather nifty forwards backwards motion of the lower jaw, they can basically chew plant matter. So while we chew going side to side, they go forwards and backwards. And then you have the caseids, which are the most abundant animals at this time, and also the largest, so you can't really miss them. They're huge herbivores with giant hands, probably for digging, but really tiny heads. 
So just to put this in perspective, you have something like Tylerhynchus. It's about three meters long. It weighs about half a ton. It has hands spanning about 30 centimeters. But its head is probably smaller than yours. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, that's the largest and probably most successful herbivore during this very brief interval. So it's a time when you have these really unique animals, they're unique to the Permian, and it's at this particular time and place that they are dominating on land. So definitely North America, beginning of the Middle Permian. Absolutely, that sounds amazing. And all that's left for me to say is thank you very much to my two guests, Dr. Neil Brocklehurst and Dr. Suresh Singh, for sharing their Permian travel tips. If you've enjoyed what we've been talking about today, then please do check out their research because they're investigating really exciting stuff. There are links to their work in the episode notes. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if you have, please feel free to like, subscribe, share, and leave a positive review. And I hope you'll join us again for another episode of the Backpacker's Guide to Prehistory. But until then, safe travels. Thank you.